Welcome to Boston's Best of Metro West podcast, where you go behind the scenes with financial planner Mark Condon as he asks industry-leading experts in the Metro West area of Massachusetts to talk about their businesses. Mark will find out what sets these companies apart from their competition and how they rose above the inevitable challenges they faced along the way to their ultimate success. And now, here's your host, Mark Condon. Welcome, everyone. Welcome to episode four of Boston's Best of Metro West podcast. The goal of this podcast is to highlight businesses in the Metro West area of Massachusetts. My guest on today's podcast is Sam Hendler. Sam and his two brothers, Jack and Eric, are the co-founders of Jack's Abbey Brewery in Framingham. They opened their first doors in July of 2011 and opened the beer hall at its current location, 100 Clinton Street, in October of 2015. Jack's Abbey is known for their house lager, as well as the seasonal copper legend, and my personal favorite, the Framinghammer line of stouts. In this episode, Sam shares how he and his brothers grew up in a family business when his grandfather started a packaged ice company. Family businesses is what they know, and when that business sold, they received great advice from their dad to try and find something they loved and start their own business. They started in a 12,000 square foot facility and now have a total of 130,000 square feet. It certainly hasn't been easy though. They all began this business in their early 20s. Sam explains the personal sacrifices made and how the three brothers all lived in Jack's house together early on to get the brewery off the ground. Sam tells us how important it is to be able to recognize when things are going your way and to take advantage of those situations. And be sure to listen to the end as Sam shares how generous the local community has been during this time, as well as how they pride themselves on being a part of the large community to see everyone succeed. And so with that introduction, I hope you enjoyed this episode of Boston's Best of Metro West. Welcome to episode four of Boston's Best of Metro West podcast. This week, I have Sam Hendler of Jack's Abbey Brewery in Framingham. Pumped to have Sam and his team on here. How are you doing today, Sam? Doing all right. Thanks for having me. Yeah, like we discussed, um, I feel like that's a loaded question these days with everything. <laughs> with everything going on, we can, I'm sure we'll get yeah. to it at some point. But, you know, tell us a little, about, a little bit about yourself, Jack's Abbey, your brothers. Uh, this is a family-owned business, correct? Yeah, that's it. I think that's one of the, the most important parts of our story is myself, my two brothers, Jack and Eric, and our dad helped us get this all started. So it's just the four of us and really me and my two brothers who operate the brewery on a daily basis. We got things going about nine years ago now. It's It's been a, a good little run. We've been framing in the whole time and you know, have a really fun kind of growth story. We started, it was just the three of us in a tiny little warehouse in the southeast corner of town. And, um, you know, slowly but surely grew it over the first year or two. And then things just really started taking off to the point where now it's kind of, you know, we have this giant facility in one of the old or two of the old Denison buildings uh, in downtown Framingham. We have two uh, hospitality spaces on site, a restaurant and a, a tap room. Yeah, as of 90 days ago, we had about 150 employees on site. It's been a crazy, crazy roller coaster for nine years, figuring out how to run this and try to keep our lives intact outside of here and uh, get to the other side. So nine, you guys have been here for nine years now. That's how long ago it started? Yeah, we, I mean, we started build out the very uh, beginning of 2011. We opened our doors July of 2011. So we'll, we celebrate our anniversary on that, from that opening date. And that'll be, yeah, coming up in the next month or so. 
Nice. How long ago was it that you moved to this facility? Was it four years ago? Yeah, so we opened on Clinton Street. Uh, the beer hall opened October of 2015, and production started January of 2016. Been about four and a half years here. So it was nine years ago. What about what was before that? Did you guys always have a plan to open a brewery? You know, do you in something completely different? I mean, how did how did you guys come about to opening a brewery of all things? So we grew up in a family business. Our grandfather started a packaged ice company and growing up, our dad and uncle ran that and we always worked there. That was all of our first jobs. And I mean, my pretty much only job other than the brewery. So we grew up bagging ice, driving ice trucks, delivering ice, everything, all ice all the time. Yeah. Family business is really what we know, what we kind of bred into maybe. It's definitely where we're comfortable now. When that business was sold, Jack was about to graduate from college and he got some great advice from our, our dad to try and find something he loved and, and go do that. And he started brewing beer professionally. After he had been brewing professionally for about seven years, he had done school for brewing as well. In the middle there, he left for some, for some school in Chicago and in Munich and came back and asked Eric and I if we'd want to try and start a brewery with them. So Eric was just finishing up at City College in Manhattan, and I was a junior at University of Vermont. I left Burlington, and Eric came up from the city, and Jack, who, who was working in Boston at the time and lived locally here with his wife, Abby, that's where the name comes from. We, we all converged, lived in Jack's house together for a while, and got the brewery off the ground. I was wondering how the name got started. I didn't know the history behind the name at all. I know it's a big name, but I never actually knew Abby. I knew there were the three brothers. I knew it was Jack, Eric, and Sam, but I didn't know what where Abby came in came into. Yeah, Abby. Uh, Abby put up with us. <laughs> I think <laughs> is is her uh, among many contributions. Probably the hardest one for her to accomplish at times. <laughs> Yeah, she, uh, you know, they welcomed us into their house initially. And then Eric and I moved into an apartment with my then girlfriend and now wife. And yeah, just kind of straight by and, and got things off the ground. How long were you guys all cramped together there? It wasn't that long. By, I think, October, Eric, Meredith, my wife and I had moved out to an apartment and there was actually over that summer, Meredith and I moved into this terrible apartment. It wasn't even our own apartment. We like off of Craigslist got a room in an apartment and it was a bad situation. It was like, I don't know if it was a converted garage or something. There was no insulation. So that first cold <laughs> night in late September, we were just like, it was 50 degrees in the room. We were like, yeah, we need to get out of here like now. <laughs> Yeah. So that was it. Eric lives like two blocks away. Jack lives in Holliston. I live over in Hopkinton. We're all we're all around. I used to live in the building across the street. I rented an apartment over there for years. So it feels far away. The the whole five miles away I am now feels very far away compared to the three hundred feet it was before. Five miles is still pretty close though. Yeah, I live in Framingham myself. Um I've been to Jack's Abbey uh plenty of times. So in the past, I mean you guys I mean, nine years ago when you guys were in college, I mean, you guys started this pretty young. How do you think, I mean, you guys are clearly successful. You're, you have a huge facility. Everyone knows, knows you guys. How do you think you guys have been able to be so successful? Like it's not easy to start 
your own business, never mind a, a big business at such a, a young age? You kind of need a lot of different things to come together for it to happen. We certainly put in the work and made a lot of sacrifices and made it happen from the personal end, but you have to get lucky. Our timing in the beer industry was great. We were right at the front of the huge upswing of craft beer, so the timing couldn't have been much better. Generally, especially locally, looking at what's happened to Framingham in the last 10 years, I think we're located in a great spot and a great community that's really embraced us. Yeah, I don't know. It, it's hard to point to any one thing, but you just you see all of these things that could have gone wrong and some of them did, but you figure it out and you get some lucky breaks. And when you get a lucky break, you attack and do more and more and more and push it and push it and push it. And I don't know, here we are. I, I <laughs> wish I could succinctly say like, oh, if you just do these seven things, you're all set, but you need to do those seven things and get lucky and have a time right and, and, and. The more you work, the, the quote unquote luckier you get. I think you kind of create in some fashion your own luck. Some things are going to become successful. You're going to have huge challenges. Uh, you're going to have some failures, but I think without those failures, you can't achieve success. I mean, that's just my, that's my personal belief behind it. I think if you just do a whole bunch of the little things correctly and eventually things just converge and things just start to line up because of all the hard work. That's it. I, yeah. If you're not putting in the work, you're probably not going to make it. You have to be unbelievably lucky. The work, that willingness to put yourself out there and do the work is kind of, you know, just table stakes. If you're not in, you're not going to win. But from there, you need you need to get some things to break your way. And when they do, you need to recognize that that's happening and you need to like take advantage. I think that's, if there's one thing my brothers and I, I think are pretty good at, it's being flexible and adjusting plans on the fly. And, you know, when we see something breaking our way, we don't just let it happen. We'll force the issue and we'll go take advantage of that. That's smart. What are some of the challenges that you guys have faced? It's inevitable something's happened. What are the, what are the, some of the things you guys have like tried and it didn't go as, as planned? I think one of the things that we tried that definitely didn't go well was we tried a bunch of really unique packaging formats out of the gates. So we were doing like four packs of these half liter bottles and people weren't doing the math and realizing it was a great deal. They were just seeing a four pack and thinking it was less beer than a six pack, but they were actually bigger bottles. And we've made a, a bunch of like, just kind of not great decisions and cut them loose and moved on pretty quickly. So like that didn't resonate and we cut our losses on it, moved into a more traditional six pack of 12 ounce bottles. That, that's just an example of like a, a specific challenge but I, I think the bigger picture challenges were related to growing really really fast especially like 2014 15 and 16 most clearly 2015 we went from maybe 24 25 employees at the beginning of 2015 to about 100 by the end of the year and we did not have an hr person we did not have an accountant we were just flying by the seat of our pants we were building out this giant facility. Uh, we were taking out debt to do it. And we were moving extremely fast, both in our professional lives as well as our personal lives that year. There, we just didn't have enough structure around us to manage that smoothly. 
Um, we, we did it by the seat of our pants. The way we, we were able to for the first four years, right? We were small in that old space. We had a staff that, you know, if there was an issue, everybody knew us and would just come talk to us and we'd work through the issue and move on. And all of a sudden we're in this uh, new space with this restaurant happening. We have so many employees and we thought we could just keep that going where, hey, if somebody has an issue, they can just come talk to us, right? We're approachable, we're reasonable. We'll, but that breaks down when it's, it's not 20 people anymore, it's 100 people. It's just not possible to have that deep a relationship, that trusting relationship overnight with all of those people. And hopefully we, we've done a lot better job of building that relationship. So there is that trust factor years later, but it was so fast. The trust wasn't there. And we didn't fully understand that we suddenly needed systems. We needed you know, policies and procedures that could be consistently applied in every situation. And maybe that meant they weren't gonna be perfect. And we cherished that like, you know, the solution for one employee's problem may be different for that person than somebody else who's experiencing the same problem. And we love being able to say, hey, you want to do it that way? Great. Let's do it that way. That works for you. And this guy, we're going to do it another way. And that's going to work for him. And everybody's going to be happy. But when you blow that up five times in the course of 12 months, and there's not that trust yet, and there's not that relationship yet, it comes across as special treatment and it comes across as not holding people accountable to the rules. And I think that's definitely been big picture, the biggest challenge for us is we went from this tiny company to a pretty mid-sized company basically overnight. And we didn't do it with nearly enough structure, with nearly enough training, with nearly enough resources for our staff. And it ended up creating some hard years that really we brought upon ourselves where you know staff didn't know what they were expected of them on a daily basis and that wasn't fair to them and it wasn't fair to us and staff thought there was special treatment and staff and i i think we've broken through it and we've always tried to work with our crew as closely as possible and i think overall we have a great team and great relationships with our team but that growth phase can be really, really challenging and definitely for me, the most challenging part of my career so far. Yeah, I could imagine. I mean, you went four to five X on employees in the course of a year. I mean, it's not like you went from yeah. one to five, you went from 20 to a hundred, you know, yeah. I mean, that's without a single HR person in the building. <laughs> oh, <laughs> sounds like an absolute nightmare. <laughs> yeah, that's fair. Though. I mean, you know, people, I think people respect it when you, when you put that much effort into, you know, it all starts with the top. It really does. You know, when people put you, when you put that much effort into it, people understand that you're doing everything as well as you can and you're treating everybody as equal as you can. And then I think you, you guys grew so fast. I mean, so didn't the, like you had talked about the craft brewery industry. I mean, do you think that accelerated some of it in that year as well? I mean, why do you think it's been so big over the last decade for craft breweries? I mean, I'm 36. I've stopped drinking, you know, Bud Light since I was like 25. I just can't. And I don't know if a lot of people are just like me and they just want real beer, but I certainly know yeah. a ton of people that that just love the the craft industry. Why do you think it's gotten so big in the past decade? Um, 
I think there's a bunch of things. One is I think people are increasingly supportive of brands that they feel like they have a genuine connection with. There are a lot of big companies that have managed to do that really effectively through great marketing campaigns, but it's kind of hard to beat that connection at a community level. And breweries across the country are community gathering places. They're part of their communities. They're supporting local charities. They're doing the work. And I think that connection is what is winning a lot of the support of consumers. I think the other thing is that has really driven it and the success of the industry is the success of tap rooms. By the way, when we opened, we weren't even legally allowed to sell a pint of beer over the bar. That didn't happen until 2013. These are really recent changes to the regulatory environment, but the tap rooms are just these unbelievable gathering places where people can hang out with their friends. And they're also often uh, these super unstructured environments where you're playing cornhole or you're playing arcade games and you're just hanging out. And there's just fun places to be that have become part of the culture. So if people are spending their Saturdays instead of the malls they were going to in the 90s and early 2000s, now they're spending their Saturday afternoon at a brewery tap room. That's a huge shift that uh, the brewery world is winning a lot of that business. Just to like, hey, it's three o'clock on Saturday. What do you want to do for the next three hours? I think brewery tap rooms have been one of the most popular destinations to answer that question. Yeah, I agree on that on all cylinders. My wife and I, friends of mine, like exactly what you just said, Saturday or Sunday afternoon. I don't know, like what's close by? And it's like, okay, well, Jack's Abbey is a massive place to go and hang out in the great food. It's great beer. Uh, it's just a fun, casual place to go to. And it's just more enjoyable than I mean, a mall. That made me think of your business. It's huge, right? Like Jack's Abbey, like when you walk in, that seating area is just massive. It's just, it's a cool atmosphere. It's just a cool place to hang out in. It's very laid back. I mean, tell us about, I know you guys were at the other location and you grew out of it. How much thought was it to go into like as big of a place as this? Were you ever curious or were you ever afraid that you weren't going to be able to fill up? I mean, it's such a massive, massive place. We were terrified. <laughs> um, yeah, we were absolutely quaking in our boots terrified. We went from 12,000 square feet to 67,000 square feet overnight. So, And then added another 63,000 square feet. So we're up to 130,000 square feet now. It's a ton of space. We had a plan to make it work but really no idea if it would or wouldn't. Um, we thought it would, we thought it should, could, um, and it did, which is great, but it was definitely a, a pretty terrifying leap to take. Looking back on it and all the things we didn't know, I'm not sure that I necessarily would have the guts to make that decision over again, because I think a little bit of naivety can, can help you make it through that. Yeah, there was a ton of optimism and excitement that was very much so on a seesaw up and down with fear and nervousness of what it would take to make it all work. 130,000 square feet. I didn't realize it was that big. Is that inclusive of you guys are connected to, to Springdale as well? Right? Yeah, it's all one company. Uh, Jack's Abbey and Springdale are all one company. So that's the two buildings. It's all on one lot. The buildings are actually connected, but 
the Jacks building on one side and the Springdale building on the other. So the, the Jacks Abbey building has most of the production facilities and the first floor of the Springdale building is mostly storage at this point. And upstairs of Springdale is the Springdale tap room and then our barrel aging facilities. Okay. Okay. I didn't know the, I didn't know the relationship, you guys were connected. So I had assumed there was some similarity between the yeah. two. I didn't know it was all essentially one company. Yeah. So you guys been here for four years. I mean, what's, I mean, you guys are still so young too. Like what's the, I, mean, I guess COVID, we, I mean, we can either get into it or we don't have to get into it. <laughs> not me, but like outside of that and what's going on right now, like what is like a 10 year goal or a 30 year goal? You guys just continuously flying by this, the seat of your pants. Uh, it's definitely got a lot more organized than that. I think we've come to accept that we need to build a lot more structure and organization into the company. And we have done that. It's funny being a family business, the goals often end up being a lot different than what a lot of other companies' goals would be. A lot of the goals end up being things like, you know, being able to have a five-day work week. That that ends up being a goal. Like, can I have a five-day, maybe like 50, 55-hour work week? That sounds great. How do, how do we build this business up to the point where as the structure, the management team, where me and my brothers can have a little bit of work-life balance and that quality of life that we've we've severely lacked for most of the ni- last nine years. That's probably not one of the primary goals of your average Fortune 500 company is, you know, how do we get to a 50, 55 hour work week for the owners? But those are the kinds of things that really matter to us more and more as, you know, we do have families now and yeah, the the five-year goal, the 10-year goal, the 30-year goal, we want to build a super stable company that can provide for our family. And I mean that in the uh, most literal term between me and my brothers, but also the larger family, people who work here, we provide for a lot of people and we want that to be stable and we want that to be something that can provide for the long term. And yeah, we, we have our own personal goals of what we want our lives to look like five years, 10 years down the road. And making that mesh with the business can be a challenge at times. And sometimes the business needs what the business needs. I think obviously right now is a, a primary example of that sitting in the middle of COVID where basically 70% of our business evaporated overnight. You know, work-life balance isn't a primary concern right now. And Wish it could be, but it's not. We're here six, seven days a week, and we're we're doing our best to to see the company through this fiasco. Obviously, all of those longer term goals have disappeared with a much shorter term goal of survival. And I think that a lot of the business community, especially those in industries that have been as affected as the one we're in, it, that that has become the goal. That there's no goal of hitting this sales record or that profit number or whatever, the goal is very straightforward. How do we survive? How do we adapt to whatever's coming next? We can get into like COVID a little bit, like, but obviously this is ridiculous. You just said 70%. I mean, that's a huge number. One thing I've noticed too, if when this type of things happen, people automatically, not automatically, but I think people are more self-aware of supporting local businesses. So like, and you guys are, you guys are active on social media, not only the city of Framingham, I guess, but how has the area itself really supported you guys with, you know, with curbside pickup and 
and all that type of stuff. Yeah, people have been showing off and it's been awesome. I mean, obviously it, it pales in comparison to the business we were running uh, 90 days ago, but the support we've gotten through curbside pickup, people have been great with tipping and you know, a lot of our, our hospitality staff lives off of tips, which have all also evaporated. So I know typically tipping on a takeout order maybe some people add a couple bucks or add a couple percent but we're, we're seeing you know full 20 percent tips and sometimes even more and that's been really really nice and a huge boost for the uh kind of skeleton crew that we have in here uh helping us make make retail orders happen so definitely people have been super generous and People are trying to support us and it's been a huge help. I like can't understate. We had extremely low expectations for what um, retail curbside pickup would be able to do for us. The support we've gotten for the community has been able to far exceed those initial expectations. Uh, we initially thought we'd be able to keep about five or six people employed doing that, operating that part of the business. And we actually have about I think it's about 15 people, not all full time, but um, 15 people still making a paycheck out of that side of the business when we really weren't sure ultimately if we were going to be able to support any of those jobs. As far as, you know, brewing goes, I mean, how many brewmasters do you guys have? How, what is your, what do you got? Like, I feel like you guys got to have like a hundred with 130,000 square feet. Like how many brewmat, what is the process? So, I don't even know. I'm so naive to this industry. Like, what is that? process like how many brewmasters do you guys have so it's interesting there's three basic parts to the brewing process one is what we call brewing which is the mixing of ingredients um, that happens every day new batches of beer are being brewed that being said after that brew day that liquid goes and lives in a fermenter we add the yeast and it'll ferment out and we'll condition it in the fermenter it, that batch of beer is going to be in the fermenter for about a month. And then we transfer it over to packaging. And the packaging crew needs to put it into, for us, it's mostly cans and usually kegs. Interestingly, from a workforce portion, the majority of our production staff is in the packaging department. And then the next largest crew is in the cellar. Those are the, the group taking care of all that beer that's sitting in the fermenters for 30 days. And we actually have a staff of maybe, I believe we have about five people brewing right now. So my brother, Jack, is kind of oversees the operation along with a couple of production managers and Mike, who's our head brewer. Mike was also our first employee. So he's coming up on nine years with the company. So that team will, you know, set recipes and process improvements and set the schedules and all of that more management administrative side of making beer. And then there's a crew of chef brewers who will come in and be responsible for, for executing all of those recipes and schedules. There's one guy has maybe the, the coolest job in the brewery is Jake, another longtime brewer here who is in charge of our uh, pilot system. So the big brew house that you can actually see behind me there, that brews 240 barrels of beer a day. It's like 3,500 cases of beer. The pilot brew house brews five barrels of beer a day. 
Jake gets to manage that pilot system. And that's where we do a lot of experimentation. You know, if we have a new beer we're going to try out, the first thing we'll do is brew a pilot batch. Is it actually a good idea? And then we'll scale it up. And sometimes we'll just have something that's, you know, we know is a really niche thing that maybe we just want on tap in the beer hall. We'll just do a batch in the pilot system with no expectation that we'll ever brew more of it. Almost can get more creativity in that position than the brewing management team that's responsible for making, you know, tens of thousands of barrels of house lager every year, which is brewing the same exact recipe exactly the same way. That job becomes all about process improvement and efficiency and you know, sourcing of raw materials. Those end up being the biggest parts of the brewing job from a management standpoint, where that pilot system, that's where you get to really let that creativity side of the brewing uh, process flourish. That's exactly what I was going to talk about next is, is in the previous conversation, you said experiment. And I said, I got to figure out like, you guys just randomly throwing random ingredients. At, like, how do you come up with, I mean, there are so many flavors that come out of Jack's Abbey. How do you even begin to think of something that might be a cool idea? Inspiration can come from a lot of different places. Uh, and this is my brother's purview much more than mine, but I'm in the room for a lot of this. Inspiration can come from trying awesome beer that another brewer is making. There's a lot of great brewers. I mean, just looking at Massachusetts, there's a lot of people doing awesome stuff. So sometimes, you know, a brewer will come in and like, oh, you got to try a can of this. And we'll talk about how to, what do we like? What would we change? Sometimes inspiration will come from food. Like the, the food scene is really cool in Boston right now. And there are a lot of chefs doing interesting, creative things and playing around with flavors. I think Springdale uh, has gotten really, has had a lot of fun messing around with bold, uh, interesting flavors in the beers. We have a, a beer called Lavinade out right now with lavender and lemon in it, uh, which is really, really refreshing, summer, beautiful, yeah, yeah. tart beer. Yeah, inspiration can come from a whole bunch of things. I mean, as far as how you recreate that here, you know, the pilot system is a big help for kind of lowering the stakes and if it doesn't come out the way you want it. It's a little bit more affordable to dump that batch of beer than a 240 barrel batch of beer. But yeah, you know, the crew here has a lot of experience making beer at this point and usually can get to 90, 95% on a first whack of what they, they thought they were going to try and do. And then that being said, that last five or 10% can often be a big challenge to get to. 100%, especially on those flavorful beers. Like lavender is a great example. Too much lavender and and it's like you're drinking potpourri. But lavender, if you go, if you're not aggressive enough with it, will get totally lost in a beer. So finding that balance is so, so tricky and takes some time and experimentation of exactly how much lavender and for how long. It's not just how much of the ingredient do you use, how long is the contact time, how long is it steeped to, to get that flavor extracted. Yeah, I couldn't even imagine the the process of that, that 5%, but it's it's pretty cool to hear that you guys can hit it 90 to 95% of the time for the first batch. Like that's, that's pretty impressive stuff. It's good. It's great. We have an awesome brewing staff with a ton of experience that can get you that close pretty much on first go. But man, I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to understate how hard that last portion is to get it from 
yeah, this is what this is in the ballpark to like, yes, this is something that people really, really respond to. Outside, so we talk about creativity and outside of creating the flavors of the beer. I'm always curious about how breweries come up with some of the names of their beers. Do you guys have a process? Are you guys just like in the back, like drinking one night, throwing names out? There's obviously, I'm sure, that have some meaning behind them. I, sh- I should have talked about this as our biggest challenge. Uh, <laughs> you know, there's, I think we're up to 8,000 breweries across the country, and those breweries have created on average, I think it's something like 200 different beers. So you multiply that out, you get to, you know, like 700 billion, trillion, gazillion <laughs> names have already been used. Yeah. I'm pretty sure that's the exact calculation, actually. Yeah, you can do a brainstorming meeting and put together a list of beer names that you think are cool and fun and resonate with whatever image you're trying to put together with that beer. But that meeting will be completely useless without access to the patent and trademark office database and just going onto sites like Beer Advocate or Untapped and searching for the names because, I mean, so many names are used and it's hard. Yeah, we uh, we do our best. We There are definitely themes we play off of and try and keep names in certain buckets, but it can be really, really challenging to come up with something that will be impactful and will resonate and is not already the trademarked intellectual property of some other brewery in the country. Do you have a favorite beer at Jack's Abbey? Is it the next one? Is it like the is there or is there like the first one that was your favorite? Or you just like a bunch of different types? I love drinking something different depending on what's going on. If it's a hot day and we're cooking burgers in the backyard, I want kosher pilsner and something nice, clean and crisp. And if it's an evening, maybe just me and my wife where we're having a nice dinner there's a lot of like sour beer over at springdale i love sipping on some sour beer everything in between i love the variety that our our company puts forward our industry puts forward and i think there's a perfect beer for every meal and for every occasion from from morning to night (laughs) (laughs) love it Love it. Yeah, because I'm big into I'm big into stouts and porters. Oh yeah. I love the framing hammers. I, I could drink them over the summer, uh, but it's nice every once in a while. A lot of times it's a lot more of the of the summer beers. I but- mean, I love a barrel aged framing hammer, like chilling with a couple friends at the campfire at ten o'clock on a, a summer night. Yeah. But when I'm sitting down for a burger and whatever at the barbecue. That's not what I want to be putting back. I want something a little bit lighter, cleaner, refreshing. And that's why, yeah, something like Post Shift or House Lager uh, would be where I would go for that venue. Yeah, I agree entirely. At the end of the night, love having a, a nice little, a nice stout. Um, but yeah, yeah, if it's the middle of a summer day in July, I'm not going to be slinging back a few, you know, a few 10% stouts. It's just no. <laughs> not going to be doing that. I mean, outside of, you know, this is a huge family business, you know, outside of running this business, I know the work-life balance isn't there yet, but like, what do you, what do you and your brothers do outside of this? You said you're married. Do you have any children or? Yeah, I have one and one on the way. Um, Jack has two kids. So yeah, we have families. We, We spend as much time as we can with them. I mean, honestly, there hasn't been a ton of time for hobbies, but 
Jack's definitely done a much better job staying in shape than Eric and I. Uh, that's something he spends some free time on, but no, nah, there's certainly would love to have a little bit more of that free time. Congrats on, you said number two is on the way. Congrats on that. Yeah. Thank you. It's exciting. It's exciting. Yeah. Exciting, terrifying. I think we already talked about that seesaw. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a little bit, a little bit. You know, last couple of questions, I guess. I mean, going into, the, I guess this year is a little bit different. Like, how do you guys define success at the end of, say, each year? Right? You know, do, is there, I know you're flying by the seat of your pants a lot. This obviously changed everything. And, you know, maybe the success of this year might be a little different than traditionally. But, like, how do you guys define success from year to year or month to month? or just if you just look at it as a macro perspective, you guys have clearly been successful. Yeah, I think it's something that we're honestly grappling with. I mean, right now, May 2020, success for 2020 will be existing on January 1st, 2021. And that might be a little bit morbid, but it's just the reality. It is what it is right now. I think we're trying to figure out what success is. And we certainly know that it's not entirely a financial measure not for us it never really has been and i i don't think it it should be obviously there's a baseline of providing for our family that we're looking to get financially out of the business but from there i mean fulfillment at a personal level is a much more complicated thing than getting a couple bucks in your pocket and having a team around us that is working hard and feels the love and appreciation for that and feels like they've achieved something, accomplished something. And that team goes beyond just the employees here, the, our, our key vendors and uh, the, all the companies that we work with around the state and the Northeast. Now we wanna be part of a larger community and see everybody succeed. I think that's part of what's so challenging right now is that so many people are hurting and it's like every direction you turn there's another challenge what are the metrics of success then when it's not just financial i don't know how you how do you measure fulfillment and contentment and that's definitely something that we'd like to figure out like you said it doesn't have to be a, a metric or a number i think it sounds like success to you guys is that work-life balance at some point like getting to there like it doesn't have to be a number so I think getting to that point, like you, that would be success for you guys, especially now that you guys have young kids and starting like families. I mean, I think that in itself would, you know, you have a, you have a, a business and a structure that just, that can run and you guys can step away and maybe just get down to, you know, a 40 hour work week or maybe just work five days a week. Um, 40 hours. Yeah, we'll see. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Maybe 50. All right. Last question. Are there any major, you know, new releases coming out? this year in this at least for the summer or maybe something for the fall already i know things come out early you know f fall beers come out in like june i feel like so <laughs> uh i mean our biggest release of the year seasonally is always copper legends our Oktoberfest um that does come out in august i know everybody that makes everybody uncomfortable but <laughs> that is a business decision that cannot be changed so yeah copper legends is something to look forward to. Other than that, I'm really looking forward to reopening the beer hall at some point. And certainly we don't want to do that until we're confident it can be done in a, a safe way that protects our staff here as well as the, the people who are going to come in and spend their money with us. That's going to be a, a day that 
you know, marks a big step towards normalcy for the company and hopefully for a lot of the people out in the community as well to be able to go out and dine and have a beer and hopefully get a little piece of normal back at some point here will be really, really important. Yeah, soon. I think it's just a matter of time. Maybe I'm more, uh, you know, I have a more positive outlook than some people or maybe I'm just naive. I don't know. But I think it's just a a matter of time. I, I can only imagine. Let's hope so. (laughs) <laughs> Sam, I really appreciate you coming on here. This is the, the fourth episode of Boston's Best, the Metro West. I appreciate the time. And for all of those of you who have been living under a rock and you haven't visited Jack's Abbey, uh, go visit Jack's Abbey. Order some curbside pickup soon enough. Hopefully we can actually go into the beer hall and hang out and sling some beers back. But again, I really appreciate the time. I've enjoyed the conversation and um, I'll talk to you soon. Thanks very much, Mark.